Mosquitoes and ticks aren't just unwanted guests at barbecues. They can also carry serious diseases. Illnesses from mosquito, tick, and flea bites have tripled since about a decade ago. In the U.S., people are becoming increasingly concerned about Lyme disease. I was 12 when a family friend of mine noticed me complaining a lot that I was tired and I couldn't sleep. Anise Bermudis lives on Martha's Vineyard. It's an island off the coast of Massachusetts. When she first got sick, her symptoms matched a lot of other illnesses. At one point, she thought she was anemic. And when I was taken into the pediatrician, my pediatrician recommended that I be tested for Lyme because it is so common here. For some, Lyme disease can cause a rash and flu-like symptoms. But others suffer from long-term joint pain, extreme fatigue, and even neurological problems. I went to infectious disease doctors who put me on multiple antibiotics at a time. Nothing I did ever made me feel any better. I tried tinctures and herbs throughout the years, acupuncture for joint pain. Bermuda suffered with depression during her sickest years with Lyme disease. Now she's in her 20s, and though she's feeling better, she continues to watch more people in her community get sick. Martha's Vineyard and neighboring Nantucket have some of the highest rates of Lyme per capita. On Nantucket, at least 40% of the population has or has had Lyme. Health experts say they may be underestimating the number of people affected because of how difficult it is to diagnose. Scientists are scrambling to come up with ways to address the spread of Lyme. One idea is to release hundreds of thousands of genetically modified mice on these islands using a technology called CRISPR. Imagine CRISPR as a pair of molecular scissors that scientists can use to cut and paste genes that influence certain traits. Here's how the plan on Martha's Vineyard would work. Mice are a source of food for the ticks, but mice can carry Lyme. If scientists can edit their DNA to better fight the disease, the ticks wouldn't be able to pass it on to humans. But the plan comes with some controversy. Amy Doxer-Marcus covers health, science, and medicine for The Wall Street Journal. Using CRISPR or any new technology to change the environment, even to change the environment for good, is complicated and also morally fraught. It's really hard to make decisions about a shared environment. And what if the plan doesn't work, or worse, introduces unforeseen problems? It's hard, even within the context of an island, to understand what's potentially going to happen. And I think that scientists are responding to these very legitimate concerns by thinking about novel ways to achieve what they want, but also respecting the idea that scientists can't always control what happens to their inventions. Over the next few weeks, we're re-examining our reporting on the transformative effects of genetic advancements like CRISPR. In this encore edition of The Future of Everything, reporter Jennifer Strong explores the complexity of deploying technology that crosses moral, political, and environmental lines. A lot of people keep guinea hens because they think they eat a lot of ticks. Oh, do they? Uh, I guess they eat some ticks, but they eat a lot. I don't know. I'm on an island that's famous for its beaches, but I'm currently wearing a coat with a hood drawn tight, sleeves taped around my wrists, and socks pulled up very stylishly up to my knees over my pants. And that's because this island, Martha's Vineyard, is infested with ticks that carry Lyme disease and a whole host of other tick-borne illnesses that I don't want to catch. 
My name is Richard Johnson. I'm the director of the Martha's Vineyard Tick-Borne Illness Reduction Initiative. I just call it the Tick Program because it's a lot easier to say. I go around to people's yards and I do surveys and check for ticks. And we're at the home of uh, Nan and Warren Doty. I don't know if they're here or not, but we'll go knock on the door and see and introduce ourselves. Hi, Nan. How are you? Hi. Johnson. Yeah. This is Jennifer Strong. She's Hi. doing the ticks have gotten so bad that their family members have stopped visiting during peak tick season, May through July. Amazing how you have to sort of adjust your whole life around the ticks on the vineyard if, yeah. if you're smart about it. Not well, only what you wear, but even when you come and when you're outdoors. Yeah. Well, we've had Lyme disease or whatever else it might include yeah. enough times that we're we think about it. Johnson visits a handful of houses each day to measure the tick population and help locals figure out how best to keep them out of their yard. So what I'm going to do is I have a little survey, and I'll go yeah. around and look at what we think relates to the tick habitat, the things, okay. the factors, ecological, environmental factors that we think are related to the presence of ticks. Okay, and then when we're done, I'll come in and talk to you, and we can Great. tell you what we found and uh, talk about if there's anything you want to do, what the steps are that you could take to you know, get rid of the ticks or make the yard a little bit safer or whatever. Yeah, great. Okay. Okay, wonderful. All Thank right. you. Thanks. The Dodies have a beautiful yard with tree-filled wetlands and a winding stream. Johnson says this is the kind of environment ticks love, moist and shaded, so we suit up to protect ourselves. Uh, since you can't see me, I will tell you I'm very stylishly dressed in some very <laughs> ugly blue pants, which I'm going to tuck into my tan-colored socks. I also have on a white uh, dress shirt. Everything I'm wearing is treated with a chemical called a permethrin, which is used to, it's a tick repellent and it also kills the ticks. He goes to his truck and grabs a pole with a white towel wrapped around the end. We walk over to a stone wall covered with leaves. I'm just trying to get enough of the towel down here touching the leaves and the whole thing doesn't have to, but I want to make sure some of it's dragging across the leaves and the plants. So if the ticks are there, they will, they will watch on. He pulls the contraption out of the brush and lays the towel flat on the ground. At first, all I see are specks of dirt against the white towel. But then my eyes adjust, and one of the specks moves. There we go. There's our first deer tick. You can see him right here. Oh, that's tiny. Yes, they are small. <laughs> I mean, they're tiny. They're the size of a poppy seed, literally. He takes out a lint roller to collect the tick. He'll send what we find to a lab at Tufts University in Boston, where researchers will study them to see if they're carrying diseases like Lyme. Doing what I do, where I go around every day and I talk to people about ticks, I'm constantly hearing these terrible stories about how sick people have been, about their children, their parents, uh, themselves. I don't think it's too dramatic to say it's ruined lives. It's certainly impacted lives, and I think it's pretty close to have ruined a lot of lives. People have been really, really sick. Hearing these stories and searching for ticks admittedly makes me really nervous. I was diagnosed with Lyme a few years ago, so I'm naturally paranoid of getting bitten again. Let's say I keep looking at my legs, I'm like convinced something is biting me through my socks. Um, great to tell you, probably the rest of the day you're going to be scratching and itching yourself. Johnson says he found 50 ticks at another site after sweeping just a few spots in the yard. But this house has fewer ticks than he expected. We go give Nan and Warren Doty the results. Well, so I would call it pretty good news, actually. Shall we sit at the table here? Sure, yeah. 18 deer tick nymphs, which is, you know, a fair amount, but considering how much of the property I dragged, and I went down the path to the fire pit and across the stream on the bridge, down that path a little bit and around the sculpture garden, and I, I would have guessed I was going to find 
at least twice as many. So that's the good news. But I don't know. I think if I'd been here a couple weeks ago, I might have found more. It's been hot, which causes ticks to dry out. So despite the good report, he tells them to be cautious. Lime-carrying deer ticks are on the rise, and so are Lone Star ticks. They don't carry Lyme, but they do carry other diseases like Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, and they can give people a severe allergy to red meat, both of which can be deadly. Johnson thinks the key to slowing the problem is reducing the deer population, which has exploded on the island and provides food for the ticks. And if five years from now we're still talking about we need to get rid of some of the deer, we need to do something about the ticks, then we're going to be mighty glad that Kevin has been doing this and that we have that as an alternative approach because we may very well need it. The Kevin he's referring to is Kevin Esfelt, a researcher at MIT with a different plan to curb Lyme on these islands. Over the course of four years, he wants to release hundreds of thousands of genetically engineered mice with immune systems that would kill Lyme bacteria so ticks couldn't spread it to humans. But why mice? The way Lyme disease works, you have the mice, you have the ticks, and you have the deer. The deer aren't involved in disease, but they determine how many ticks there are. And the number of ticks and the number of mice determines how many of those ticks are infected. And the communities are unwilling, largely, to do anything about the deer, which leaves the mice or the ticks. People are generally unwilling to engineer the ticks and be bitten by engineered ticks, which, by process of elimination, leaves you the mice. The idea is to test these mice first on an uninhabited island. Being an island has advantages because it means you're not surrounded by a sea of a billion mice, meaning that if they were to immunize most of their mice, that will last for at least several decades. Not forever, because evolution always has the last word, but on a human time scale, long enough that it could be a long-lasting way of preventing tick-borne disease. The researchers are using CRISPR to alter the mice DNA, but they first need to find the antibodies in the mice that fight the disease. Joanna Buckthall manages the project. So mice become protected naturally when they are bitten by a tick and their body, luck of the draw, has a good immune response to the bacteria and is able to create antibodies, albeit probably not very good antibodies. They have to repeatedly give Lyme bacteria to the mice. The more times a mouse has to fight the disease, the better the antibodies get at fighting it. And it's these super effective antibodies that Buchthal is after. Once we have a set of highly protective antibodies, but also simultaneously, we will start working on how to integrate those antibodies into the mouse genome in order to make mice that are immune to the disease and capable of passing that immunity onto their offspring. But it's a lengthy process. The team is working with the white-footed mouse, which already exists on Martha's Vineyard. They're nothing like the lab mice scientists are used to working with. They're 25 million years removed from lab mice. The rat is more closely related to the lab mouse than the white-footed mouse. It's incredibly challenging as a result because we don't have uh, the typical rogue map. We don't know what their antibodies look like. And that's not the only reason why Esfeld's team is moving slowly. Releasing a gene-edited set of mice onto an island could have consequences for the ecosystem and the people who live there. He wants the islanders to vote on the project. Both communities have been holding town hall meetings with local residents. Thank you for coming out. I think this is an incredibly important event, and especially for the citizens of Martha's Vineyard, because this is what this is all about, is us. Martha's Vineyard resident Betty Burton opens the discussion. There's a crowd of about 70 people here to listen to Esfeld talk about his project. So... I'm going to give a very brief overview of the Mice Against Ticks project. You can see a much more thorough overview, including a lot of details that have been put together by 
the students at Martha's Vineyard Regional High School. In each of your seats, there is a pamphlet that they put together. Local high school students spent a semester studying the project, and they're at the meeting even though school is out for summer. It's just one example of how involved this community is in Lyme education. The residents seem receptive. Still, Esfelt reminds everyone about the stakes. It's not like developing a new medicine. When you develop a new medicine, your doctor recommends it to you, you can say no. But this is an environmental change. And so if the community decides to do it, but if you vote against and you're overruled, you will still be affected. You can't opt out. The panel also includes Harvard professor Sheila Jasanoff. So Martha's Vineyard is a very particular kind of human ecosystem. And it's not obvious to me that this experimental system stands in well for the kinds of global community engagement exercises that need to be had. She studies the relationship between science and democracy. I mean, you know, we're talking about a highly specialized kind of community. And, you know, there's a real question when we're talking about making changes with technologies that are going to have global ramifications. What kinds of deliberative structures will be appropriate for those? Thinking globally is important because researchers are studying a more potent form of genetic engineering called gene drives. It helps one generation of an organism swiftly pass its traits to the next. Like CRISPR, this phenomenon exists in nature, but scientists can also force the system into DNA. But you can imagine them all as cheating the normal rules of inheritance. Instead of having, say, a 50-50 chance of ending up in the offspring, a gene drive might increase that to 70% or 90%, or 99%. And thanks to recent advances in genome editing, particularly with CRISPR, we now, we think, can harness gene drive to deliberately alter the traits of wild populations. With gene drives, researchers could exponentially change the genes of mosquitoes and other pests to help curb deadlier global diseases. You know, what scientists are talking about is potentially ridding the world of disease-carrying mosquitoes, the major killers, you know, the mosquitoes that carry malaria, the species that carries Zika and dengue and yellow fever. Betsy McKay covers global public health for The Wall Street Journal. Even critics of some of these new technologies like gene editing, gene drive, CRISPR-Cas9, even they say, you know, this is something really worth considering. This is an animal an insect that doesn't really contribute much to the environment, but it's taking lives. And when you're talking about taking lives, you know, you really have to consider it seriously. Still, the risks of using gene drives aren't so clear, even with a pest like mosquitoes. You know, they do pollinate plants. They're food sources for other animals. And, you know, the other issue is when you get into doing things like this, when you get into eradicating um, or talking about eradication, I think people need to think about what a fragile ecosystem we have and how every animal plays a role, every insect plays a role. Back at Kevin Esfeldt's lab, the Wall Street Journal's Amy Doxer-Marcus brings up some of these questions. As humans, we've pretty much managed to make a mess of things we put our hands on. We don't mean to often, but we do have a historical tendency to do that. And so I guess my question is, how would you address people who are less optimistic by nature and who look around and say, we don't have the greatest track record? What makes you think that we're going to do any better this time around? We have certainly made messes, especially in the shared environment. At the same time, when it comes to 
health and wealth and overall well-being, the average human is better off now than any time in history. And we should be proud of that. We should be proud of our creations. What I'm worried about is that we don't tend to take action until after the disaster. And as the power of technology increases, I'm worried that eventually the disaster is going to be bad enough that the safety engineering might be a little bit too late and not just for the people directly involved. CRISPR mice and gene-drive mosquitoes don't solely involve science. They cross ecological, cultural, and political lines. So here you're talking about discussing scientific issues, but the differences may not always be over science, how to implement something or even the strategy to choose. And I think sometimes these moral questions are the ones that people don't think about when they move forward into a project. They figure, well, maybe we can come to some kind of consensus over the approach scientifically, but they don't realize how much choosing the scientific approach might be intertwined with someone's moral values or perspective on everything from religion to the environment to society. And even if we first test these ideas in labs and on isolated islands, we can't predict how they'll play out in real life. If we take our time and we try to assess all the potential dangers of moving forward with a technology, which is a very legitimate thing to do, we also have the potential risk that more people will die from a disease or get infected with a disease that we might have prevented had we moved more quickly. If we move too quickly, we also have the prospect of wreaking havoc, doing something that we didn't anticipate that we were going to do, that we didn't even intend to do, that we weren't trying to do, and it causes an even bigger problem than the one we were trying to solve. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. This episode was produced by Christian Schwab, Brian Gutierrez, and Amy Doxer-Marcus, with help from Daniela Hernandez and Betsy McKay. Our technical director is Jacob Gorski. Thanks for listening. I'm Anthony Green.